Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. Uh, We're continuing in our series on the life of Paul. Uh, uh, Kathy summed up what we're going to talk about really well, and that is watch out for the self-inflicted wounds that we as a church, that we as Christians uh, fall prey to and that stop us from accomplishing God's plan. So this is kind of an old joke. Uh, You may have heard it, but just indulge me. There was a man who was discovered all by himself on a deserted island and... His rescuers, when they found him, he said, I've been here for over a year. I was in an airplane that crashed in the ocean. I washed up on shore. I was the only survivor, and uh, I'm so glad you found me. And they said, well, we are too, but we don't understand. If you're the lone survivor, then why are there three huts built on the beach? And the man said, well, that's simple to explain. See this one over here? That's my house. And this one over here, that's where I go to church because you see, I'm a, I'm a devout Baptist and I wouldn't dare miss a Sunday outside of church. And they said, well, yeah, but what about that third hut? And he goes, oh, well, that's, that's where I used to go to church. I'm glad you got it. And, and it would be a lot funnier if it wasn't so close to home, wouldn't it? We... Last week, we talked about the very real possibility, in fact, the certainty that if you live a life totally devoted to Christ, boldly seeking to serve him in the world, you're going to face persecution. And we talked about how in this country, we're part of sort of a a bubble. Uh, Most of the world doesn't have the the freedoms and the privileges we have, where where most of us will probably never suffer in a physical sense. Our suffering will be more in the emotional sense of ostracism or or ridicule or criticism. But while those wounds still hurt, we we don't worry that we're going to be thrown into jail for preaching the gospel. We don't worry that government agents are going to swoop in and and burn our church down or or throw me in prison or or take one of us out and and publicly uh, lash us. That that happens still in parts of the world today. And and I know that during this time of COVID, there's been a real focus on, is there a sense in which our religious liberties are in danger? And, And there's been evidence. Thank God here in Texas, we've been very, very free. But in other states, we've seen some government overreach. We've seen, for instance, in Nevada, I remember hearing a story that churches were ordered to be closed and yet casinos were open. And it didn't make sense. And, you know, it's one thing if, if churches have to follow the same rules as businesses, but if you allow people to go and pull on a one-armed bandit or play roulette, well, why, don't, why aren't they in danger from this illness, but people sitting in the pew are? And so things like that concern us. And I know that I myself, that religious liberty is, is one of the two or three issues that matters the most to me in a political sense. And yet, and yet listen to me. I am much more concerned about what happens inside the church than anything that happens against the church on the outside. And I'll tell you why. Because historically speaking, when the church of Jesus Christ is persecuted, it tends to thrive. I know it's ironic. I know it's counterintuitive. But you look down through history about nine times out of ten when a government or a particular ethnic group or or a competing religion tries to shut down the church... Usually the church explodes in growth and the gospel spreads faster. It's happening right now in China. It's happening right now in Iran. You go down the list. On the other hand, most of the time when the church fails, when the church declines, when the church doesn't do what it was called to do, 
It's because of self-inflicted wounds. It's because of things that we do to ourselves. It's because of us disgracing the gospel or, or moving away from the true gospel or, or, or losing our witness in society. And that's what we're going to look at tonight in Acts 15. This is a monumental moment in the history of the church when the church comes up against an opportunity to seriously end what is happening, the good things that are happening in the world in the name of the gospel. Because when we left Paul and Barnabas last week in Acts 14, in spite of persecution, in in spite of uh, Paul being nearly stoned to death, the gospel was spreading like wildfire. Nothing could stop it. But now in Acts 15, it starts with a very ominous conjunction. Chapter 15 says, but, but, by the way, when good things are happening and the next word in the Bible is but, it's never a good thing. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now I need to give some explanation because uh, Luke in his wisdom and led by the Holy Spirit, he just gives us that one sentence summary of what happened. Paul though spends an entire chapter talking about the same incident in the book of Galatians, Galatians 2. And here's what happened. So uh, the people of the church in Jerusalem, all of them Jewish Christians, had been watching things in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were elders, for many years. You remember, years before, they had sent Barnabas to check things out, and Barnabas had reported back and said, things are, things are good here, Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together, I know it seems weird to us as Jewish Christians, but this is God's will, I'm so in approval of this, I'm going to stay here and become an elder here in this church, I'm not coming back to Jerusalem, and I'm bringing my friend Paul. Now years have passed, and not only is the Antioch church continuing to grow, now they've sent out missionaries, now there are half-Jewish, half-Gentile churches springing up all over the Mediterranean world. And there is a segment, there's a faction of the Jerusalem church that says, this has gone too far. Now you have to understand where they're coming from. Put yourself in their shoes. Number one, they're able to do the math and see, wait a second, as, as Jews, we're part of a tiny minority on the face of the earth. If we're just gonna share the gospel with any old everybody, It's not going to be long before we're totally forgotten and Christianity is an entirely Gentile movement. But even more than that, here's what they were thinking. You know, several hundred years ago, our people lost our nation. And we've never really fully gotten it back. Our temple was burned and our people were carried off in exile. And why? Because we went away from the law of Moses. Those 613 commands that we as God's people are called to live by. And now here's these churches springing up all over the Mediterranean where they're not saying to people, hey, you need to obey the law of Moses. You need to get your men circumcised. You need to convert to Judaism. You need to follow the law of God. No, they're just saying believe in Jesus and get baptized and you're a believer in Christ and you're saved. And they're saying to themselves, isn't that what caused us to lose everything before? Isn't that what aroused the wrath of God before? We've got to stop this. And so they go to Antioch and they go to all the places in Galatia where Paul and Barnabas just planted churches in in the chapter 14 that we studied last week. And they start saying, you Gentiles aren't really saved. You realize that, right? Sure, you believe in Jesus. Good for you. You've been baptized in his name. Good for you. But you're not following the law. Your men haven't been circumcised. You understand you're not really saved yet, don't you? And you can imagine how upsetting this was to those churches. 
And to make it even more upsetting, the Jewish Christians in those churches, including the church in Antioch, started saying, you know what? You got a point. I I don't know what I've been doing. I've been eating meals with these Gentiles who believe in Jesus, and and that's not right. I can't can't go and sit in a house and, and praise God together with these Gentiles. And believe it or not, even Simon Peter, who had come down to Antioch some months before, even he started pulling back from the Gentile believers. And to make things worse, even Barnabas, Our hero, the son of encouragement, even he said, yeah, I'm going to not worship and eat with these Gentiles anymore. And so there was a very real danger that the church was going to fracture. And right here, right now, it shows us the two two tendencies that often cause us as God's people to shoot ourselves in the foot. I know, I know, we've got more ground to cover. I promise I won't go this slow the rest of the chapter, but we, we have to cover this. Number one, There's an inability that we have to disagree graciously. There's an inability to disagree graciously. Remember, this disagreement had been going on for years, but now now that the church is spreading among Gentiles, there's this faction in the Jerusalem church that says, we got to put a stop to this. Earlier, they had done the right thing. They had sent Barnabas to investigate things. They had asked questions. But this time, they jump to conclusions. This time, they immediately rush to judgment. And that's the way we do. How many times has this happened to you? You get word that there's another church in town that's all of a sudden growing, and and people are coming to know Christ, and and, and the church is, is suddenly having to go from one service to two, or from two to three. And what do we say when that happens? We say, well, they're, I bet they're not preaching the true word of God. They're probably watering things down. The reason they're reaching people is because they're telling people what they want to hear. We don't know that. We're just assuming. Or we're in our life group or, or, or just out in the atrium and we hear someone say something that we disagree with. And rather than say, well, I need to sit down with that brother and, and we need to talk this over. Or even just saying, well, you know, he and I can agree to disagree because we're brothers in Christ. No, we jump to conclusions. We say, well, that's a heretic. We get angry. We even leave the church because we think, I can't be in the same church with someone who believes that. And it's not even anything that's core doctrine of the faith. It may not even be anything that has anything to do with Christianity. It's just an opinion that that person expressed that we don't like. And don't get, even get started on how we act on social media. I, I am regularly shocked and appalled at, at the things I see Christians type on Facebook and Twitter and other things. We can't seem to disagree graciously. And it doesn't mean, I'm not saying that we have to, we, we can't stand up for truth. We must stand up for truth. But at all times, we must speak the truth in love. Second tendency that gets us into trouble, and that is a desire to make the gospel more exclusive. Now, I don't know any Christian who would say, no, I don't like the gospel. We need to add some restrictions to it. But it's not what we end up doing, Right? We come into the family of God by grace alone, through faith alone. We, when we're new believers in Christ, we love to sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. There's a reason why that's the most beloved hymn in the history of, of evangelical Christianity, at least in the English world. And yet, the longer we've been believers, the less we believe that song. We don't want to go to church with a bunch of wretches. We want to go to church with people who 
who don't offend our sensibilities. It's like we got in in spite of ourselves and now we want to make the bar for membership higher. And so we erect these barriers. We say, yeah, yeah, believing in Jesus is fine, but unless you've performed these particular rituals, you can't really be saved. You had to have said these specific words in that prayer. You had to have been dunked in this kind of pool. You had to have walked the aisle in this way. You have to have, uh, you can't be guilty of these specific sins. Boy, if you've done those sins, at best, even if you get in, you're, you're a second-class believer. And, and if you're still struggling with those sins, well, there's no way you're really saved. I mean, my selfishness and my anger and my gossiping, well, God overlooks that stuff. But your sins, no, 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 that's of a different category. And so, so once you're in, here's how you better dress. Here's how you better talk. Here's how you better vote. And here's the kind of church you better attend. Because if you attend one of those churches over there where they teach stuff that I don't particularly like, no, you can't really be a believer. You can't really be saved. You see how we add to the gospel when all that matters is Jesus. Did Christ die for your sins? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you haven't saved yourself, but you've trusted in him for salvation by grace, then you're saved. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so here's, here's what's going on in the early church, and I can't express to you how high the stakes were. Unless something happens, there's going to be a fracture within the church of Jesus Christ, and there's going to be a Jewish segment of the church that says we are the true believers because we're of the people of God. We're the chosen ones. And then there's going to be a, a Gentile section that says we're the true believers because we trust in him by grace, not all this law business. And, and that's right at the beginning of the church. How destructive that's going to be. So here's Paul. He's essentially on an island. He's not a Gentile. He's a Jew, but he can't go with where the other Jewish Christians are, are going. So what does he do? He publicly rebukes Peter. This is in Galatians 2, verse 11. He writes, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, I can't express to you how dramatic that moment must have been. Because this is Peter, y'all. This is the one man that Jesus looked at and said, upon this rock, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. This is, this is Peter. This is the man who preached on Pentecost day and 3000 people got saved. This is the man who an angel personally came and delivered him from prison. This is the man who raised a dead woman from, from death to life. This is Peter. And who is Paul? Paul's just some guy who used to kill Christians. Paul didn't even walk with Jesus in his time on the earth. How dare Paul stand up to Peter? And yet that's exactly what he does. And there must, I, I don't know, because Paul doesn't tell us what it was like, but I bet in that church in Antioch, when Paul stood up to Peter, I bet you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody's mouths dropped open. And we don't know how Peter reacted. We don't know if the old Peter came out of him and he got, he got angry and stomped off or took a swing at Paul. We don't know if he was humbled, if he was sorrowful, if he wept like he did after he denied Christ. We don't know. But Paul confronts Peter publicly. And then he sits down and he writes the letter to the Galatians essentially saying, what's the matter with you people? You're new believers in Jesus. I just told you the gospel. How dare you leave it behind? Do you know that Paul was so angry 
when he wrote the letter of Galatians? You know how I know how angry he was? There's a verse in Galatians where he literally says, I wish these people who were so obsessed with circumcision would just go the whole way and castrate themselves. That's in the Bible. Look it up. And then after he sent that letter off, he said, Barnabas, let's go to Jerusalem because we need to settle this once and for all. We need to get this settled before our church fractures. And, and the trip to Jerusalem would have taken over a month. It was over 500 miles. It gave them plenty of time to think of what they were going to say. We don't know. I'm just speculating here. But knowing the personalities of those two men, I imagine that Paul was hot about half the way there and saying to himself, I can't wait to stand up in front of those people and tell them about this verse and this verse and this passage and this prophecy. And essentially he was going to do to the Jerusalem Christians what he did to the Galatians. And I imagine that Barnabas with his personality kept saying, Paul, you can't talk to them that way. The Galatians, they were different. They came to know Christ because of you. You're their spiritual father. You can boss them around. But these Jerusalem believers, they don't know you. They don't respect you. You can't talk to them in that way. They're going to get their backs up. They're not going to hear you. Some of them walked with Jesus in the flesh and you didn't. So we need to be more humble. But along the way, what Luke does tell us is along the way, Every town they went to, they found a church. And they were able to board with those believers in Christ. And, and they would tell them, here's what's been happening as we went town to town sharing the gospel. And in every one of those churches, the people rejoiced. And so somewhere along the way, they decided, you know, when we get there, let's not argue or debate. Let's just tell stories. Let's just tell what God has done. And so that's exactly what they do. So let's pick it up with verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. Yes, you heard that right. There were people who were Pharisees who had become believers in Jesus. Hallelujah. But they were still stuck on this idea of the law. They rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, now I'm going to pause here. And I want you to consider that if you're Paul and Barnabas, the last time you saw Peter, Paul was getting in Peter's face and was embarrassing him publicly. And if Peter's like most people, especially most men, he's been holding on to a grudge all this time saying, I'm going to get Paul back. And so when Peter stands up in that meeting, it's just my opinion. But I imagine that Paul and Barnabas looked at each other and said, uh-oh, this could be bad. What does Peter do? Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He's talking about the incident earlier when he went into the home of Cornelius, this Roman centurion, and preached the gospel, and everybody in that house got saved. And Peter just kind of threw up his hands and said, I guess Gentiles can be saved too. That's what he's talking about. Now, verse 10, he says, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He says, listen, us Jews can't follow the law. That's why we needed Jesus to die for us. They get saved the same way we do, by the grace of Jesus and nothing else. And you can just see Paul and Barnabas going, 
Oh, thank God. Fist bump, right? And then James stands up. And this is where the moment of truth really comes. Because James is the brother of Jesus. The literal brother of Jesus of Nazareth. James is now the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now that Peter has started going on missionary journeys himself. James stands up and you know the verdict is about to be rendered. Verse 13, after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now let me tell you something about that verse, uh, that, that verse 14 that you might miss. First of all, he doesn't call him Peter. He doesn't even call him Simon. He calls him Simeon. Because Peter's given name was Simon, but he's named for one of the 12 patriarchs of Israel, Simeon. He calls him that for a reason. He's appealing to the Jews in the crowd. And then he says, God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. That's a direct quote from Zechariah 2.11. God said, I'm going to take from the Gentiles a people for my name. Then he says, and with the words, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. That's a reference to Amos 9, 11 through 12. Now, I don't know if James has been meditating on those verses from the Old Testament all this time or if the Holy Spirit gave them to him while this debate was going on. Either way, James stands up and says, guys, this has been God's plan all along. God never intended for there to be different segments of his people. He never intended for the Jews, we Jews, to be the only ones. Yes, we're the chosen people. Not chosen to be the only ones God loves. Chosen to be the ones that take God's love to the rest of the world. This has been God's plan all along. So don't stand in the way of God's actions to redeem this world. That's the stakes, people. Don't stand in the way of God's actions to redeem this world. And then he says, verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So what's going on here? He's not creating new law. That's what it sounds like, but it's not. Let me put it this way. Imagine two men marry into the same family. They both marry daughters of the same family. And these guys are both very passionate about their politics. And one of them is very far right conservative and one of them is very far left liberal. And and they both sit down and they say to each other, listen, you and I are not going to agree about much of anything. But what matters more than our disagreements is the peace of this family. You love your wife. I love my wife. I want this to work. So tell you what, I won't wear my MAGA hat when we get together for Thanksgiving. You don't wear your BLM t-shirt when we get together for Thanksgiving. We won't talk about politics because we want our family to love each other, okay? Deal? Deal. Right. So that's what's going on here. James is saying, Gentiles, we're making a huge concession here. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament. We're telling you, none of that matters. You just believe in Jesus. But there's a few things you could do that would make it a little easier for us as Jews if you, if you would just avoid these certain kinds of foods and these certain kinds of actions just for a little while, that's going to make this transition go so much better. 
And you know what? When that letter got to Antioch, verse 31 says, the Gentiles rejoiced. God had done a great thing. So what do we do? How do we avoid shooting ourselves in the foot? How do we avoid the self-inflicted wounds that get in the way of God's work in the world that keep us from being a church that's effective? In fact, the kinds of wounds that make us an impediment to the gospel, as sad to say some churches are to this day, and you know that I'm right about that. So how do we avoid that? Two things that we see in this story. Number one, learn to love each other more than we love getting our own way. And that goes for me as the pastor, and that goes for you as church members. That goes for every single one of us. And I guarantee you in a church our size, even though, even though thank God, this is a church that, that is relatively loving and peaceful, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that, and, and, and people in this church, the mature people tend to be leaders in this congregation, I'm thankful for that, and still, and still I know, I know there are conflicts, I know there are people who hold grudges, I know there are, there are situations where this person doesn't like that person and this person thinks that person's an idiot and a fool. And, and, and what I'm here to say is, with all due respect, get over it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, literally, get over it. If you're waiting for an apology, be the bigger person. And if you think that that person has hurt you and you've got a real dispute with them, or if you think they're wrong and they need to be confronted, just remember that that person is more important to God than your disagreement is. Doesn't mean your disagreement doesn't matter. Doesn't mean that your wounds don't matter, but that person is more important to God than your hurt feelings. Keep in mind that First Baptist Church, just like every church that calls itself by the name of Jesus, is bigger than you and me. And so we should remember that and ask ourselves, am I getting in the way of what God wants to do here simply because I'm being stubborn, simply because I got my feelings hurt, simply because I need to be right? Get over it. In the name of Jesus, learn to love others more than you love getting your own way. And if you ever catch me falling astray of that, you have my permission to come kick me in the rear end. Okay, gently. I don't want a busted tail, tailbone or pipe either way, but come confront me because I need it. Number two, come back to the gospel every single day. That's that's our lifeblood. See, we think of the gospel. What is the gospel after all? The gospel is the good news that says that you can't save yourself. The, the son of God had to come and lay down his life for you, which he did joyfully because he loves you more than himself. But because he died for you on the cross, you can be saved. You and I are saved only through his blood on the cross. He rose again the third day, which means that our lives on this earth are not finite, but we get to go with him when our lives are over and he's coming back someday to establish a new earth and be king where we will live with him in resurrected bodies. Hallelujah. The gospel is wonderful. And that's how we got saved saved, right? But a lot of us just think of the gospel as the entrance requirements to get into the family of God, which it is, but it's so much more than that. You need the gospel every single day. And here's what living by the gospel means. It means every day you're confessing to Jesus, Lord, I can't do this. 
Lord, I I still keep stumbling over these same sins. I need you to change me. And when it comes to the things we've talked about today, particularly, Lord, you know, you know how hard a time I have with that other person. You know how much they hurt me. You know how my stomach churns every time I look at her, every time he gets up and talks. Lord, you know the kinds of feelings I'm holding on to. So by the love that motivated you to go to the cross, by the power that raised you from the dead, change me. I'm here to tell you, friends, if you're not praying every single day of your life for God to change you in some way, you're not living by the gospel. Change me, O Lord. When's the last time you prayed a prayer like that? Why not start today? Because the gospel and the body of Christ are bigger than you and me. Let's never forget that.